Isn't he just so great? He's so fun and wonderful. We're so grateful to have Jay with us. Well, welcome for those who are um, just well, coming in with us. As I made the announcement earlier, you see it up on the screen. No Wednesday class next week, but we will be here with Bob Fuller next Thursday. So keep that in mind. Um, I'm so excited to be back with you. I was telling uh, several of the, the people last night, the last time I taught in here was February of 2020, literally weeks before the COVID shutdown, before our world changed um, for a long time. So at the time I had very small children. So I love to give an update as always and show pictures of my dear ones. Um, it helps you to understand who I am and what my life is like. And for, I don't get to do this from when I preach in the pulpit very often. So I get to indulge a little bit here. So um, my kids have grown quite a bit since you probably last saw pictures of them. Here they are, Cora is five. She will be in kindergarten next year. So she's a, a fall birthday. Um, her brother Thomas, uh, my son is two and a half. And so both of them are in school downstairs. They're there this morning, pretty much right below us. So um, it's great to have them on campus with me. They're very, very silly. Um, they, on Friday last week, it was Dr. Seuss week. So they dressed up as thing one and thing two. If you haven't read Dr. Seuss, there's a whole book about thing one and thing two. Cora was very excited about the blue hair. Thomas, not as much, but they pull it off pretty well. They're pretty darling and they keep us very, very busy and very, very tired and very, very joyful. So um, here's a little bit of the, their personalities. Thomas, we started swim lessons last week. He's, uh, he's one of those kids that's joyful, up, 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 and then can throw the biggest fits you've ever heard in your life. So um, he was not as excited about the goggles in this picture. And then Cora is our shy one. If you see her around church, she's usually hiding behind my legs. But um, when we are in the comfort of our own family, she likes to make silly things out of her food. So we're in that stage of life right now. <laughs> her tortilla face. Um, so if you were to see my children on Sunday, on a Sunday or a Wednesday or sometime during the week, Thomas would come up and give you a high five and say hello and be smiling and excited and want to be your best friend. Cora would not even look at you. So we have very different personalities. It's amazing to me, genetics, because they, they're the same, you know, they're from the same two people and yet very, very different. Um, Many of you remembered my mom. I've always liked to talk about her here. She was a pastor here years ago. She lives two miles from us. And so she and Mike, uh, my stepdad, get to watch the kids a lot. Corey gets to do sleepovers over there. They cook and bake and do all those things. Obviously, we get to spend Christmas together, which is such a joy uh, to have grandparents close. So those of you who are grandparents, love on those kiddos. It's just the best gift ever. So, so grateful for that. Um, here's Colby. A lot of you haven't seen Colby in a while because during the pandemic he was home with the kids while I was here at work, but he does exist. He is uh, the love of my life and uh, there he is with the kids at the park. And then here we are as a family at the Pearl at Christmas time. So we have a lot of fun together. They keep us busy, like I said, but I'm so, so grateful for them. And um, I can't believe it's been two years since you guys have probably seen pictures of these guys. So um, we're going to get, oh, here's one last one. Uh, we always go to the park Sunday afternoons and play. And so uh, it's one of our favorite things to do. So those are my, those are my gems, my babies. So uh, before we begin, uh, that has nothing to do with our lesson. I'd just like to give you guys a sneak peek into our lives um, and to show you a little bit about that. But before we begin to dive into Joshua 9, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. What a gift it is to wake up this morning to beautiful sunshine and beautiful weather. We don't take for granted uh, the gift of breath in our lungs. 
We pray, Lord, today that we would come to your word with humble hearts, ready to receive what it is that you're teaching us today. Let your Holy Spirit dwell in and among us and walk us through as our eyes are opened to what you have done in and through your people for years and years and years and the promises of mercy and grace upon us as your children. We thank you for loving us and for walking with us each and every day. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 9. We continue with the story that you've been uh, reading about, learning about for the last several weeks and months, really even since the beginning of the year. Last week, Bob talked about the battle at AI and how initially, because of Akon's sin, the Israelites were defeated at AI. Because of one man's sin, there was all of these ramifications that happened and the Israelites were defeated at AI. Eventually, though, they conquered AI. At the end of chapter 8, we see that Joshua renews the covenant with God at the Mount of Ebal and um, sort of reinstates, you know, recommits to the law of Moses and builds an altar and um, really connects with, with God there. But we talked about sin last week and how sin really is something that is fatal and something that separates us from God. Not just a oopsie, but a truly death, um, a death, the result is death for sin. But we have Jesus, right? So we look today, we come from there, and we look at this next section of Joshua, which is the best story. When Bob assigned this passage to me, I was like, yes, I got a good one, Um, because it's really, really fascinating. It's a really great story, the Gibeonite deception. So we look at the first two verses of chapter 9. I'm going to read them for us as we begin today. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the low land among the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, meaning heard of Israel's defeat at Ai, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Okay, let's stop there for a minute. So at this point, up until this point, Israel had been, up until the defeated AI, Israel had been undefeated, a big, powerful group led by Joshua and defeated, uh, conquered Jericho. And so all of these Canaanite people were fearful of the powerful Israel. All these Perizzites, Amorites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, Hittites were scared of this great force of Israel. But... They were defeated at AI, as you learned last week, because of Akon's sin. And so all of a sudden, these Canaanites see a chink in the armor of the undefeatable Israelites. They see for a brief moment that maybe, just maybe, we could defeat them too. So I'm going to show you a map here of um, this Canaanite territory. So here we are in this green area. Um, We have Jericho right here, Jerusalem, it's hard to keep my hand paused, Jerusalem right here, Gilgal in the Jordan River Valley here, and then Hivites, Parasites, Jebusites, Hittites, Amorites, all living in this area of Canaan. So those are the ones that are mentioned at the beginning in in verse verse 1 and 2 of our scripture. So they're coming together, forming a coalition, and they're ready to fight. They see the chink in the armor of the Israelites. They see, oh, they were defeated at AI. Now, I bet you we could defeat them too. 
So these six kings come together. They gathered as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So based on the news that they heard about Israel's defeat, they come together and are ready to fight. That is one response we get to what happened uh, last week in our lessons. There's another response, though, from another group of people. They're called the Gibeonites. So now we see how they responded to the news of Israel's defeat. They, the Gibeonites, lived kind of around this area right here, just north of Jerusalem. The Gibeonites were technically Canaanites. They were people that the Israelite people were not supposed to make treaties with. But they did not join together with this big group of people that were ready to fight against Joshua and Israel. They came up with a different plan. So let us now look at verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions. Okay, we're going to stop right there. So they heard, again, Israel has defeated Jericho and eventually defeated Ai, and they're a little bit more scared of the Israelites. They're thinking to themselves, you know what? We don't really want to go and fight. We don't want to join up with these other groups. We would rather make peace because we think we would lose and we would be destroyed. And so they are thinking a little differently than the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they decide to come up with a ruse, a plan, a trick, if you will. And this is really a fascinating story because it's so human nature. They are ready to save their own tails. They do not want to get killed. They do not want to go into battle. And so they come up with a lie to deceive the Israelites. Now, how many of us have lied to protect ourselves? Probably none of you. You all are great church people. Never. Yeah, I see, I see uh, heads nodding. I for cert certainly have. I have lied to, you know, save myself from getting in trouble. I blame someone else when really I should have been the one to take the blame um, because I'm scared, I got scared. And here we see the Gibeonites are scared. So they make up this whole new trick. Before we go into what they actually did, let's look at who they are. We have to jump to verse 17, and it describes there the cities that were part of Gibeon. So verse 17 of chapter 9, and um, it says, the second part of verse 17, now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. So four different cities. Here's another map. Um, well, this is another map of, that, of those, of those uh, groups that came together ready to fight, right? Here is, here's Gibeon. Okay, so Gibeon is right up here. We know that the Battle of Ai just happened um, right here. Jericho is over here and Jerusalem down here. So they're all really close together. So these four cities around Gibeon, here's a more detailed look. Um, we've got Gibeon, Beeroth, Kiriath, uh, Jerim, and Kephira. Those four cities are what make up the Gibeonites. So when we refer to the Gibeonites today, think of those four cities. They're very close. Right over down here is Jerusalem, kind of right off the map there. So they're very close to Jerusalem. They are part of the Canaanite group. They are part of the people that the Israelites should not in interact with. They are part of the people that the Israelites are set to destroy. They come up with a plan because they are scared and they want to save themselves. So... We see here, sorry, that was loud. Um, we see here that they go and they create a trick. So what do they do? 
We'll continue with verse 4. So they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Okay, so these folks really went to a very big effort to trick the Israelites. They spent time thinking of everything. What would it look like if we were to journey from very, very far? Instead of just, oh, we're just five or 10 miles northwest of uh, Jerusalem, what if it looked like we were coming from way over here, or way down here? What would it look like if we arrived after a long journey? So they wore out their sandals, they wore out their wineskins, they dried up their bread, and they made it look like they had come from a very far away place. These folks had done enough research about who the Israelites were to know that they were not allowed to make treaties with the Canaanites, with the people in that area. So they knew that they had done their research. They knew that they had to come up with something to convince the Israelites that they were from afar. So they get everybody together. They make everything look worn out. And they go to Joshua to present their trick, if you will. Um, I want to talk a little bit, before we move on with the, with the scripture, I want to talk a little bit about why the Israelites were prohibited from making treaties with people in Canaan. If we look back to Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 20, both times the Lord distinctly and clearly and very explicitly told Moses and the Israelites that they were not to make covenants with the people in this area with any of those Canaanite peoples because they had promised them the land and it was going to be theirs and they were to go and destroy anyone in that land. So Exodus 34, listen here, it says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Same, same ones that were just mentioned at the beginning of chapter 9. Take care lest you make a covenant with inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Warning! Warning, do not make a covenant with these people. Eh, 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 eh. They've been warned, right? Very distinctly, very clearly. Then in Deuteronomy 20, verse 15 to 18, this is very explicit. Thus, you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So, for instance, people may be from over here or way up here, outside of Canaan you can, you know, be with. But, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Same group that we read at, at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable, abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. They were scared. God was, God was instructing them not to make treaties because if they were to, maybe they would be influenced to worship these false gods that these, uh, that these Canaanites were worshiping. He had promised them this land. He said, go in and take them all, destroy them, because they are not in line with you. They do not believe in me as the Lord their God. So don't make a treaty with them lest you fall into their snare, lest you fall into worshiping their gods. So it was a warning. They'd been warned about all these things. So the Gibeonites knew that. The Gibeonites knew that they were not allowed to make a treaty, so they acted with this ruse. Let's continue with what they did next. Verse 6. 
They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Okay, they're very quick to the point. Let's talk about Gilgal for a second. Um, right here we see in the Jordan River Valley, Gilgal. That was initially a place before Jericho that they were all um, hanging out and kind of preparing for their battles. Probably, and this is according to one of the commentators I read, probably this is not the same Gilgal that's being referenced here in Joshua 9. Likely, this Gilgal was closer to the Ai and Gibeon area because they had just defeated Ai. They had just made this covenant in the Mount of Ebal. And so it's likely a whole different area than the Gilgal we've heard about before. So I know that's kind of a technicality there, but just it wasn't as far likely as this was from Gibeon. It were probably really close by. Um, and so they come to Gilgal. They, they see Joshua. We want to make a covenant with you. Okay, what does Joshua do? Let's see. Verse 7, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? So their initial response is to be a little bit skeptical. Also note how the author here says that Israel said to the Hivites, wait a minute, the Gibeonites are acting like they're from really far away. The Hivites, we saw in this last one, live right here. Why is, if they don't know who these people are, if they are creating this big ruse that they're from far away, why does our text say that Israel said to the Hivites? The author's giving us a little clue, kind of a behind the scenes, right? We see that we know that they're from close by. We know that they're creating this de deception, this, this lie. But maybe Joshua and the Israelites did in their gut know that they were from close by. So we see that, that word here, although they would not have said, we're the Hivites, here we are, to make this treaty. They were trying to convince them otherwise, right? But we have that in our text, which is an interesting comment. Um, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? So they're like, it seems like maybe you're from around here, and we're really not supposed to do that. We're, we've just been fighting and killing people that live in this area because this is our promised land. So how are we supposed to be in connection with you? So at first... They were a bit skeptical. Let's continue on see and see what they said in 8 and 9. So the Gibeonite said to Joshua, We are your servants. They came hat in hand with humility. They weren't ready to fight. They weren't saying, give us what you need. You know, we're here to beat you. We're going to beat you up, etc., etc." They came with humility. We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? Verse 9, they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and to Og king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Okay, so the Gibeonites are really playing up this ruse. Not only are they dressed to look the part, but they're, they're talking to the Israelites as, as if they know all that they've been through. They're sharing with the Israelites, oh, we've heard about you. We've heard about what happened to those two Amorite kings. We heard about what happened in Egypt. Can anyone remember 
another time in Joshua that we've heard somebody say something very similar to this. It was just a couple chapters ago, somebody trying to say that I know about the Lord your God. Rahab, very good. Rahab in chapter 2 says almost the identical thing to the spies. I've heard about the Lord your God. I've heard of what he's done in Egypt. I've heard about these two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. She said the exact same thing. An outsider, a non-Israelite, showing the Israelites, I know about you, I've heard about you, I've heard about your Lord. Gibeonites and outsiders looking inward to say, ooh, I've heard about your God, I know who he is. So there's this, this similarity between the story of Rahab and the story of the Gibeonites here. Both outsiders, both trying to figure out how to maybe be part of this Israelite community, but clearly knowing that they're meant for destruction. Rahab was saved. Let's see what happens to the Gibeonites. Using what they've heard about God, they make a case for peace. They don't want war like the first kings did at the beginning of this passage. They want peace. And is it because they truly want peace or is it because they want to save their backsides? Either way, they're seeking to, to, to make peace. They know who the God that the Israelites worship is, and so they're curious enough to want to be part of this group. They're curious enough. It's not just that they don't want to die, which is a huge motivation, but it's also that they've heard about this God, and maybe they're curious about how to be a part, or to know more about him. So they tried again to carry on with the ruse. You know, here we are, we've come from this far place. And in verse 12, it says, here's our bread. It's still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it's dry and crumbly. So they're really trying to play this up. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they've burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So they're really playing into this. Imagine being a Gibeonite, right? You're really scared of war. You've heard about the destruction of Jericho and Ai, and you're thinking, ah, I really don't want to die. Let's get together and come up with something. Imagine how hard it might have been to convince everybody to play along. It's four cities of people, and who just decided this? Why didn't they not come hat in hand and say, I know you're not supposed to make a treaty with us, but we really just, we're not trying to make war here. Can you just have peace on us? They did what the only option they thought they had was to lie. They literally felt like they had no other options. So they come up with this ruse. Imagine being them. I mean, we're all humans. We know what it's like when we're scared and we don't want to get in trouble and we don't want to die. And we, 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 we kind of think of something quick. Here, everybody, let's pretend that we're doing this. And everybody gets on board and they do it. So they really play this up. So what is the response of Joshua and the Israelites? How did they respond? We know that in verse 7 they were a little skeptical. Are you guys from around here? Did you really travel very far? Who are you? Where are you? You know, I don't really know about this. That was probably their gut telling them, you know what, these people are not who they say they are. But what do they do? Verse 14 says, so the men took some of their provisions, the men being the Israelites, took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Uh-oh. Bad news. This is not good. This is like the crux of the story. This is the lesson for today. This is what you take home with you. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. Okay, think about the beginning of Joshua when the Lord sets up this, he, you know, gives him the authority and he says, listen to me and follow me and I will help you discern your will. You, I will help you discern the way. 
you will come to me just like Moses did, just like Aaron did, to seek the will of the Lord before making big decisions. They didn't do it here. Here they had a gut feeling, a little bit skeptical. These guys are kind of li- maybe lying to us. They're from close by. Uh-oh. And instead of going here, oh, sorry, instead of going, hey, give us a minute. We're going to circle up and pray about this. We'll come back to you and let you know what, what our decision is. Instead of Joshua kind of retreating, going to the Lord and saying, Lord, what be your will? Are these people legit? Are they actually doing what they say that they're supposed to be doing? They don't do any of that. They do not seek the guidance of the will, so they've gone, or the guidance of the Lord. So they've gone against a direct instruction from the Lord once again, and they make a decision. Verse 15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So they jump right in to this covenant of peace. They offer them a treaty, and a treaty that is binding, one such that is involving the Lord their God, one that is unbreakable and is really, truly, they can't put their hands on the Gibeonites at this point. But don't forget, they didn't seek counsel from the Lord. So they, they, they went on their own perception, on their own human instinct, on their own thoughts, and they forgot to stop and listen to the Lord. How many times have we done that in our own lives? Oh, I can't tell you how many times I'll even say to somebody, oh, I need to pray about that. And then I don't go and pray about it. Or I don't seek the will of the Lord. I still make a pro and con list thinking that my understanding of the facts, my gut instincts, my intuition is better than the guidance of the Lord. Or I'll go, you know, uh, just not even think about asking the Lord. On the big decisions, should we move to Minneapolis? Should we stay in, you know, Florida? Sure, a lot of times we'll, we'll kind of weigh out those bigger decisions. But a lot of times life happens to us. We sort of just follow along. It's our lives. We make our decisions. We go on. What should I wear today? I don't ask the Lord. What should I put on today? I don't ask the Lord which way I should drive to work today. But we're called to seek the Lord's will. The Lord has promised to give direction and guidance for us. If only our leaders of our country and our world would seek the will of the Lord. Right? So we're called to do that just as Joshua has been called to do that. But we get caught up and we we rely on ourselves because we can do it. We can make those decisions. We can do all those things. And we often are led into a path of destruction. And that, or we make uh, errors. So imagine Joshua. Here they are. They've made this commitment to this group. Come on in. Be a part of our family. We'll make a treaty with you. We aren't going to touch you. We're going to let you live. And here the tides have turned. Let's look at verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Biroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. Okay, so they realized very quickly. The ruse did not last very long. Right? I mean, imagine when you, have, when you have told a lie and the guilt that you feel, if you had to live with that for the rest of your life, that's a pretty hard place to live. You almost hope that the truth comes out, even though you don't really because you don't want to get in trouble. When it finally comes out, the relief that you feel is, oh, I don't have to play this game anymore. I can just be who I am. The Gibeonites play the game for three days until all of a sudden they hear, the Israelites hear, oh, no, they are actually close to you. They don't live too far. They're very, they're very nearby and they've tricked you. So they only had to play it for three days. 
They may have felt relief when the truth came out, although I'm sure they would have liked to continue to play the ruse as long as they could because they didn't know what was going to happen to them. The Israelites discovered the lie. They could kill him. They could all of a sudden be in a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of trouble. So we see that they find them out. Verse 18, but the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. They didn't touch him. They made the pact. They made the treaty. They made the covenant with the Lord their God as part of that covenant. It was unbreakable. They were not going to go back on their word. They knew that the consequences of going back on their word, going back on their treaty, were more disruptive and horrifying than making a treaty with people that they shouldn't have. They knew that they would be destroyed if they had gone back on their word. Think of another time in Scripture where something was given, an oath was given, out of deception. Can anyone think of one in Genesis? Think about Jacob. Yes, I think I heard it. Jacob and Isaac. Jacob tricked his father into believing that he was Esau, and his father gave over the birthright. He lied, and once his father had given it over, couldn't take it back. It was done. Now, we see the ramifications of that, down the road, and there was, you know, a lot of things that happened because of that. But imagine being Esau. Come on, man, that's mine. I was supposed to get that promise. Can't you just take, no take backs? I mean, it's like, oh, he already gave it, no take backs. Even though he entered into it under the guise of deception, it's still stuck. Same thing here. The Gibeonites enter into this treaty under a false pretense, and yet can't go back on it. It's stuck. Ugh. That is so frustrating to me. As a fairness kind of person, I like value fairness, you know. How does she get that and he doesn't? Or, you know, why did Jacob get away with that? He lied. It should go back to Esau. But the way that these, these covenants worked is you can't go against the Lord your God. The Lord your God, covenants are forever. Covenants are real and legit. And it's just because it was entered into under deception, got to stick with it. That's really hard for somebody like me, and I think for us, to think about that kind of, that's not fair. Why do the Gibeonites get peace? They lied. They're the ones that should be destroyed. They're in this area, and they lied, but they got it. I have to grapple with some of that stuff. God's will is bigger than ours, right? And we see, even in the midst of this, that it's going to cause some, some pain for the Gibeonites, right? There's going to be some consequences for their deception, for their lie, but yet, they still are let to be lit. They get to, they get to live. So as we look at this, we see that, you know, Joshua made this peace with them, made this commitment. They're not going to touch them. And then we see at the end of verse 18, then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. The Israelites were not happy. They were very upset because they're, they're ready. I mean, they've been kind of on this rampage of like beating people, defeating people. Let's kill them. They're not, they're not supposed to be where they are, and they lied to us anyway, and why would you guys make this commitment to them? And they are just angry. They're murmuring against the leaders. How often do we murmur against the leaders making the decisions? Gosh, anytime I can think of, if I'm not in the, in, in the room making the decision, I'm like, why'd they make that decision? That's a terrible choice, right? The things that happen even in the church life. What goes on in our session and what happens? And the, the, we've elected these leaders to make decisions for us, and yet sometimes we go, well, I don't like that decision very much. 
doesn't really play into my, you know, whatever it is. And we're kind of convicted of our grumbling. Right? Just like in all throughout Exodus, grumbling against Moses, grumbling against God. You've saved us from the Egyptians, and yet, whoa, you didn't give us food, and this is terrible. I want to go back to slavery. It was so much better. We're so good at grumbling. We are so good at it. I am so good at grumbling. Anytime somebody in authority makes a decision I don't agree with, I'm ready to grumble. Right? They were not happy. And not so much that because the leaders were gullible. They weren't so much disappointed because, or angry because the leaders fell into the deception, more so that they were trying to stick to what God had told them to do. Go and, go and destroy all these people. Go and don't make treaties with these people. This is your land to have. But the leaders had sworn the oath and they were not going to go back on it. So they were faithful even though they fell into a, the wrong path. Even though they didn't seek the Lord's guidance, they remained faithful to the oath and to the, to the covenant there. Imagine being the people of Israel. As you go to your groups this afternoon, or this, this morning, thinking about the different ways to put yourself in this story. First, as a Gibeonite, scared for your life, ready to find any way to get saved. Second, as Joshua and as the leaders. I don't know what to do. My gut tells me this, but, you know, they're pretty convincing. I'm going to make the treaty. Oops, I forgot to ask God for his will. And then as the Israelites, oh, I'm so mad. Why did they make that decision? You know, I can't believe this. So putting yourself in all three of those positions, because I think we've all been in each one of those spots in our lives. So talking about that with your group today. Um, The congregation were angry. The Israelites were still so mad that they didn't get to do what they had thought God was asking them to do. Complaining against leadership, grumbling against, but note, they aren't grumbling against God here. They're grumbling against the leadership. They're not grumbling against just Joshua. It's really funny because it says in 15 that Joshua made peace with them, even though the whole group had, the whole leadership had agreed to that. But Joshua really isn't taking a lot of the blame here. They're not going after Joshua particularly, you terrible leader, you horrible person. They're not going after God. They're really just angry at the whole leadership in general. And isn't that so funny too? When we have somebody that makes a decision, if they're removed from us and they're kind of far off, oh, I can't believe that person made a decision. But typically we're more mad at the organization, at the bigger picture. Joshua really doesn't take a lot of the heat on this. It's more the general... Uh, Israelite people. And I think the author is saying it that way so that, because Joshua is such a great leader and we value his leadership in so much of this. And so don't want to fault Joshua too much there. So it's just a little side note. Um, What happens to the Gibeonites? Let's keep going. So verse 20, this is what we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. 21, and the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Okay, so cutters of wood and drawers of water were, were, role, were servant roles. We're literally slaves to the Israelites, serving them in these certain ways, cutting wood, drawing water. And in this one verse, it says that they do it for all the congregation. Later on, it says they do it for the congregation and for the Lord. So they now become servants of the Lord, a Lord that they have not worshipped before, a Lord that is not their God. They are not the chosen people. And yet they're allowed to live. They're allowed to live in it. 
but now they have to be servants. Later on it says, um, well, we'll just keep going, 22, Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying we are, from very far, we are very far from you when you actually dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, he uses the word cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. How do the Gibeonites respond? Are they mad? Are they upset? Are they like, oh no, what did we get ourselves into? Let's see. 24. They answer Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. So they're explaining why they did the ruse. They're explaining why they went about it because we knew what Mo the God had told Moses. We knew that you were supposed to come in here and destroy all of us. This is why we lied to you. So they kind of fess up to it. 25, and now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do to us, do it. Okay, they're like, we're putty in your hands. We know we did wrong. We know we don't belong here. We know we should have been killed. So we're just grateful we're alive. We'll do anything. You tell us, we'll serve. We are gonna happily serve. They are like almost full of gratitude. They're just grateful that they didn't die and that they're not more punished, right? To be cursed as servants forever and ever, that's still better than death to them. And now they have this kind of alliance, this treaty with the Israelites, the powerful nation of Israel, that they get this opportunity to sort of be protected from Israel, which you'll see a lot about next week in chapter 10, when the day the sun, the sun stands still over Gibeon. Israelites protecting people that are not their own. Mercy in the midst of, they didn't deserve that. They really deserved to die. They were intended to die in the first place, then they lied. They got caught up in this, and yet they're grateful just for the mercy of the Israelites. But now they'll be servants. Now they will serve the congregation, they will serve the Lord. And 26, so he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. Think about that language. Joshua delivered the Gibeonites out of the hand of the Israelites. Deliverance. Deliverance. That's all we know. I mean, that's what we know about who Jesus is and does. He's our deliverer. He delivered us from, from death, delivered us from sin. That language here is foreshadowing who is to come to truly be our deliverer, Jesus Christ. And here we see that Joshua is the deliverer for these Gibeonites. They have a whole different life now, but they didn't die. He delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. Mercy, and they did not kill them. 27, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So they respond, the Gibeonites respond to the punishment with gratitude because they were allowed to live. They were servants. They were protected then by the Israelites. They were at peace with the Israelites. And so they kind of got what they wanted. Now the lesson here is not to say, lie to get what you want, and then once you confess, good thing, phew. But it is to say that when we do mess up, because we always do, that there is grace, right? And not to do it on purpose, to try to save our behinds, but that somebody did it for us. Somebody already died so that we are saved, right? 
and knowing that we were going to mess up, knowing that we're going to lie, knowing that we're going to be self, uh, selfish and pr try to preserve our own lives and our own safety and our own selves, Jesus died knowing that, right? And so we see so much here of God's mercy and his grace, God allowing an outsider to come in among his chosen people. Now, they weren't considered Israelites from here on out. It wasn't like their name changed and all of a sudden they were chosen people. They were still Gibeonites, very distinctly separated from the Israelites. They were not allowed to marry in to the Israelites and cross-breed, in a sense, because uh, they were still servants. And later on in, in Samuel, we see, in 2 Samuel, we see Saul kind of going against the treaty that the Israelites made to the Gibeonites and maybe possibly killing some of them. Well, spoiler alert, I know we're not going to Samuel here, but that's something to, to note that this treaty outlasted long after this moment, and yet Saul sort of broke it a little bit. But we see them as part of this safety net for a lot longer, and we'll, we'll hear about that more next week. So he delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. Um, Gibeonites assimilate among the Jews. They begin to worship God. It's sort of evangelistic in a sense. Okay, we're not going to kill you. We're going to make you be servants, but now you know the Lord. Kind of like Rahab. Rahab went into this whole thing with the spies in a more pure way, in a more innocent way. Not pure, she was a prostitute, but in a way kind of like, oh, I've heard about your God, and I, oh, I, I've heard about what's happened. And she was saved from destruction, she and her family. And then she was in the line of Jesus in his, uh, in his um, what do we call the genealogy. Thank you. And um, Gibeonites came about it in a little bit of a different way through deception, but similarly were sort of saved by God's mercy and then kind of a part of this Israelite group, although not Israelites. I want to make sure we were certain on that. Um, God's mercy on a people that were not his own. This is pretty radical for this time. Again, it was kill everyone that's not your own. Destroy them all. This is your land. Take it. Israelites or, or bust. And yet here, there's some mercy. Uh, so today, as we release from here, it's about 10 till, talk, talking with your groups, kind of putting yourself in the story a little bit, identifying with the humanity of these folks, right? Identifying with the, first of all, the kings beyond the Jordan and the hill country, you know, all these, all these kings here. Uh, well, let's go back. Um, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Hittites that are like, ah, we can defeat the Israelites. I see the chink in their armor. I think we can do it. Let's come together and beat them. Angry and ready to fight for their land. Don't forget, these guys had been in this land for a long time, and here are these Israelites coming in and destroying them and taking them and saying, the Lord told us to do this. That's probably a scary thing. So put yourself in their place for a minute. Then put yourself in the place of the Gibeonites. Oh, I don't want war. Peace, not war. Peace, not war. But in order to get peace, we've got to lie about it. We've got to deceive. And then putting yourself in the, in the place of the leaders. We've got to make a decision. Here's these people asking for something. I've got some pictures here um, that sort of show. Uh, let's see. So here we are. Joshua here sitting 
down and here's the portrayal of the Gibeonites with their wineskins and their cracked bread and their donkeys and their, you know, their, their sandals are all worn out and we've been on this long journey and please. And Joshua's sitting there going, okay, we've got to make a decision. We can't just ignore these people. What should we say? How should we, how should we go about this? Oops, forgot to ask the Lord about that. Okay, so put yourself in the place of the leaders and then put yourself in the place of the Israelites. I'm mad. What happened? And then how you might have felt as a Gibeonite who had grace mercy for your lie and you weren't deserving of it. Here's another picture of that someone rendered of the cracked bread. The dry bread is mentioned three times in this passage, which I find fascinating. Again, anything that's repetitious in a passage, kind of take note of that. Um, the dry bread is mentioned three times at the beginning. So what was so significant about dry bread? It's yucky. Nobody likes it. It's very clear that they spent the time to either dry it out or wait for it to dry to make it clear. So dry bread is interesting. The other thing that's mentioned several times in those last few verses is that they were cutters of wood and drawers of water. This was a typical role of an alien in a, a sojourner, somebody from the outside. That was a very, very typical role of a servant to do that didn't belong with the group. So that, that's also mentioned three times that they would cut wood and draw water. So take note of those uh, pieces of scripture that really kind of, okay, why do they keep saying that about it? It also said several times that they let them live, they let them live, they let them live. Um, so hammering the point home that they let them live. Hooray! What a great, what a great outcome for the Gibeonites, even despite their, their, uh, the lie. So think about those things um, as we close up. Are there any just brief questions before we dismiss to, sm to small groups? Nobody? It gets really exciting next week. So make sure to come back next week because the because uh, chapter 10 is we see all this kind of play out um, in another sort of battle. I know we've talked a lot about battles the last couple of weeks. This one was kind of a, a different uh, chapter, but then chapter 10 gets, it's all good. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's very exciting. It's a very exciting story. Bob picked a good one this year. Um, so let me pray for you all. And then we'll dismiss you to your groups. And if you have any other questions that come to mind, please feel free to come find me or email me. Or really just email Bob. He's, he's probably got more of the answers now. Last night somebody asked, um, there's a picture that I showed, and there was this tiny little river. And they're like, well, what's that river? And I was like, don't know. Google it. <laughs> I don't remember. It wasn't obviously the Jordan. It was some little tiny picture. Um, so I was like, uh, let's stick to the text. No, just kidding. But seriously, please come and ask questions if you have any, um, and I'll pray for us, and then we'll dismiss. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this time together, time to just slow down and to dig deep into your word. There's so much that you teach us through every word of scripture. Let us continue to hold it so dear to our hearts. Let us not forget that your word is a trans transforming in our lives, that we grow and we learn and we identify with humans that have messed up for years and years and years before we were even on this earth. We thank you that you had a plan, God, to send your son as our deliverer, that we were not stuck in as lying, cheating people, but that we have freedom from those sins and that we can live as free people and that we can have eternity with you. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage as we leave here, as we talk with our groups about this, as we grow deeper um, together as in fellowship with one another, that they, we would leave and share your truth with those that we encounter outside of these walls, that we would show them that um, 
God has grace even when we mess up, that Jesus is really our, our Savior and we can cling to his promises. So we thank you, Lord, um, and we pray that you would uh, just give us great conversation as we go from here. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.